You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands with Jamie the host and Dr. Valetta Gillibit the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time. All right, it is history time here on the Otago Museum Breakfast Show. What a great sponsor for a history thing. Uh, and right now I'm joined by Dr. Valetta Gillibit. I tried to say that as well as I could in Valencian. You did fabulously, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. We're going to look at, um, you know, throughout the series, we're going to look at uh, bits of New Zealand history that people might not know that much about. Uh, and one of the things that's kind of always stood out to me uh, after reading about these people was the Wakefields. Uh, and they've kind of really, I don't know why they've gone under the radar, but they're not that well known. And they played a huge part in our colonial history, especially in middle New Zealand. Um, and not only that, in, um, in our political history as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a good thing to talk about them. So I guess we'll start off with, at the beginning, Edward Gibbon Wakefield. Who was Edward and how did he get into the colonising game? Ooh, um, he was a complicated person and so was his family. Um, I'd called him broadly old money. Um, so Edward was born at the end of the 18th century and um, his family were from a kind of diplomatic, high society background, but they had constantly financial problems. And so um, that motivated a lot of his dreaming and scheming over the years and a lot of what his brother did mm-hmm. as well. And yeah, um, he got off to a diplomatic career and was doing quite well for himself. And uh, yeah, things didn't, uh, th- there was a bump in the road for sure. Yeah, the bump of the road uh, that was um, trying to marry underage girls. Mm, yes, um, by abduction, no less. Yes. And um, yeah, just a whole lot of mischief on the side. Um, not, not, the, not the greatest kind of start. So he lost a lot of clout over that, as you would, but he still mm. had really strong financial backers. He did. Because people were after cash money. And he tried a few things, one in South Australia, I believe, mm-hmm. to, um, and then he helped form the New Zealand Company. Yes. Yes, and, and that's a company that a lot of people probably will know about. Mm-hmm. And it does, you know, there's always been a really nice rosy picture painted of New Zealand Company, out they come help to settle the colonisers and mm. um, but that's not necessarily the case and which we'll show now <laughs> um, so yeah so he came up with some kind of colonialist theories right while he's, while he's in prison yeah some um, rather impressive ones for his day or at least for the people who ended up financing him um, rather sophisticated uh, so he uh, while sitting in prison he started reading about um, the Australian colonies and broadly wondering what went wrong um why they were still having issues and they were kind of you know socially unstable and the like so um he got about thinking of ways to change this broadly focused on um gender and on the distribution of land and also class controlling uh the kind of class system that developed in colonies so Mm -hmm. he was a really persuasive writer and um he had something, his biography described this tone as overwrought patriotism, which I think is probably quite accurate. Um, you know, the time he was starting to think about these things, um, Manifest Destiny was trending. Um, you know, people really believed that it was Britain's destiny to kind of take over the world. Mm-hmm. And um, Edward, uh, given Wakefield, made quite a persuasive case for helping Britain to do that. So, hence, despite a rather checkered past, which included, um, yeah, some dodgy stuff, uh, he was he was taken back on board. Yeah. 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 
So, um, so he helps form the New Zealand Company. What happens next? Mm. Well, the New Zealand Company uh, was established around 1838. Um, kind of drew all of these different financial backers and planners together. Um, the a view of the art of colonisation was his kind of big big thesis. It was kind of like you know the Communist Manifesto, but for colonisers. Um, so migrations started up. He brought um, his brother Edward in to assist him in doing this, um, essentially hawking off uh, pieces of paradise to middle class and uh, upper class Britoners and um, Scots people as well. And uh, he certainly made some very overblown promises that were very difficult to keep. Um, There had been some expeditions mounted uh, to New Zealand. Land had been... uh, "Quote unquote purchased," mm-hmm. hmm. and um, so and uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, clarity about how arable the land was, and it was certainly sold with a lot more confidence than it should have been yeah. marketed. Yeah, so um, some pretty discontented settlers um, at the end of all of it. Yeah, um, one of I guess the big purchases that was made was in nineteen, oh, sorry, eighteen thirty nine, I think, with mm-hmm. the a wild owl purchase mm-hmm. and. That was contentious for a lot of ways. I guess um, at the at the time, even that land was contentious within the local tribes in the yes. area. Yes, yeah, it was disputed territory already, and yeah, they added another layer to that dispute. <laughs> they did, they did. So, what exactly went on there, and what led to the so-called well, the Wairau incident? Well, as I understand it, um, uh, surveyors were sent in to prepare the land for settlement. New Zealand Company representatives, um, including Arthur and uh, Edward Gibbon and uh, everybody else in charge, believed very strongly that um, Māori had no claim whatsoever to this land, that um, this was now Crown land, it belonged to settlers, and it was rightly there. So they sent surveyors in, um, who I understand erected a structure or a hut. Um, there were some uh, local members of the local iwi who were sent out, explained to the surveyors um, that they were not welcome there, peacefully escorted them from the hut, mm-hmm. I understand, and then proceeded to burn the hut down, to kind of remove that, you know, infrastructure that had been put there, um, which I feel was their right. Um, however, uh, there was a rather strong response um, yes. against that from the British. Yeah, yeah. so there was a, a posse formed, a mm. vigilante posse, but that included the, what, chief constable of the Nelson police at the time, Henry Thompson, I think? Yes, correct. So uh, even though the New Zealand company were operating as a private entity or independently, um, the state did definitely swoop in there to support them at that time. That wasn't always the case. They had a complicated relationship with the Crown, but in this case, definitely, um, they had some strong backing. Yeah, and Arthur Wakefield was also in that party. He sure was. Yeah. Yes. And then, um, so this vigilante group, they went in there to settle whatever they needed to settle and it didn't quite work out very well for them did it no no um much to uh, arthur's detriment especially and uh, some others um and arthur was killed in that um in what is known as the wairau affray mm-hmm. um rather politely yeah. um so yeah there, there was a good deal of violence and um, it cost arthur his life in this case yeah so this is they're, this they're up against what nati toa mm-hmm. i believe Yes. Yeah, yeah. So forty-nine Europeans perished and eight Maori. Mm, yeah. No, they certainly met a strong resistance. Yes, they did indeed. They did indeed. Um, so what happened after that? Um, well, there was a, a lot of memorialisation yes. going on. 
Um, and the pushback again. Um, conflicts escalated, essentially. I mean, this was the first... Um, in 1843, so just after the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, this was the first kind of major bloodletting. Yeah. And, um, yeah, rather the beginning of um, a lot more violence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so what, what about um, with Ebert Gibbons Wakefield? I mean, this is this happened around Nelson, not too far mm-hmm. away from Nelson, but they also founded uh, Port Nicholson that ended up being Wellington. Correct, yeah. Um, uh, that original settlement didn't quite work out. No, no, that was, uh, you know, the... Yeah. Arable land issue and yeah. certain others. Yeah, so they decided to leave there mm-hmm. and go into land that certainly wasn't theirs. Um, yeah. <laughs> and New Plymouth really. as well as Nelson and Fonganui. Yes, correct. And they did also have a hand in supporting the establishment of um, the Free Church Settlement in Dunedin and the um, Anglican Settlement in Canterbury. So they really um, ended up being involved in the colonial project quite deeply um, and supporting it in very complex ways. And it was rather interesting how Wakefield's status has kind of changed. Um, he was upheld once as, you know, the father of systematic colonisation, mm-hmm. as um, a true kind of British patriot, a figurehead to New Zealand, someone um, who everybody was extremely proud of. Um, and certainly that view did shift. Yeah. Um, if we're thinking about, you know, uh, the, towards the, the late 20th century, especially in the 80s and 90s when decolonisation really kicked off. Yeah. Um, there was a rather kind of strong rewriting of that narrative, um, which, in in my opinion, was very welcome because it was very one-sided in the sense that, um, you know, glossed over a lot of uh, pain which had been caused to, to Māori, first of all, and secondly, um, a lot of uh, issues that Edward Gibbon Wakefield um, had and the family kind of had in the way they did business, yeah. um, the way they kind of participated in politics and... Uh, the kind of personal motivations which drove a lot of their decision making, they ended up creating um, a lot of problems for themselves and others. Bless them. Yeah, they did. They did. Um, he went on to become a member of parliament, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened with them in the end? Because I mean, the family's influence kind of. Yeah, dissipated. I mean, Edward Gibbon Wakefield, and uh, to a lesser extent, his brothers definitely got their page in history or their place in history. Um, probably not as much of the grandeur as they were expecting to have, or certainly um, it didn't last. Um, now we have people like uh, Philip Temple, who's written this enormous biography of the Wakefields as a family. Um, the genre we call it as post-revisionist history. And he's trying to achieve a balance between those perspectives, one that um, paints Wakefield as um, a kind of monstrous coloniser and um, another which paints him as, you know, this kind of benevolent patriot figure. Um, so, yeah, trying to kind of seek some more uh, balanced opinions in there as well but um, it's certainly when you think about like he ended up getting in as a as a member of parliament in New Zealand he mm-hmm. went to Canada and um, did some politicking there as well when we think back to um, what landed him in prison that kidnapping of Ellen Turner he had already married an heiress yeah. and had been widowed she died in childbirth he inherited he got a marriage settlement of something like 70,000 pounds from that marriage which I understand it's the equivalent of about seven million US oh, yeah. dollars. So he was already wealthy, but not he did not have enough money to buy an estate, which is what he needed to get into Parliament as a British MP. Uh. So he wanted more, um, and he wanted not only kind of a comfortable life, but a bit of that former glory that his family seemed to have lost. Yeah. So I think that motivated a lot of that kind of Regency cowboy behaviour and um, that push into New Zealand. 
Um, you know, we recognise now as well that Gibbon Wakefield wasn't this kind of figurehead, that um, he was part of this, you know, imperial superstructure that was already pushing um, into this kind of corner of the world. Yeah. Um, he just led it along in a rather chaotic fashion. So he was almost, he could have almost been a tool of the system itself. Yes, certainly. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, the system used him as much as he used the system. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, going back to Wairau, there is a monument to commemorate the Europeans that died in that affray. I see. Um, and, yes. you know, in the current climate of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and we're getting rid of our colonial past all around the world, uh, Confederates in the States, and, and we're starting to examine who we... Uh, put up on a pedestal, mm-hmm. you know, which <laughs> literally, is literally, yeah. which is literally, literally that. Um, so I mean, that statue still sits there now and commemorates a posse that went out to destroy mm. and steal land. So um, it's not exactly, it's probably doesn't deserve its place. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, really valuable to have these conversations and to think about what we are saying with um, the events and the people that we commemorate. And um, it is, you know, perfectly, uh, really valuable to kind of make changes and uh, possibly rebalance the equation when it comes to what we mourn, what we remember and what we put up as part of our national history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, All right. Well, um, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, you're very welcome, Jamie. Thanks An for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, and we'll talk to you again soon. Kia ora. Dr. Voleta Gilbert there. Talking about the Wakefields History Time here on Radio 191 FM, the Otago Museum Breakfast Show, every Thursday at 7.30 a.m. Tune in for next week's episode. It's going to be exciting. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.